Today, we continue our sermon series on the core stories of Scripture, and although it's Palm Sunday, we'll be focusing on the core story of the cross. Later this week, we'll hear the stories of the Last Supper and the Resurrection, but today we are invited to sit in the tension and, quite frankly, the pain of Jesus' death on the cross. Please join me in prayer. Holy and gracious God, pour out your Spirit upon us that these words of Scripture may come alive in our hearts. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our Rock and Redeemer. Amen. Our Gospel lesson for today comes from Mark chapter 8. Listen for what the Spirit is saying to the church. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and in three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And our second scripture lesson today comes from Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. Just to be honest, Paul was a big fan of complicated sentence structure, run-on phrases, and so I am going to be reading from the New International Reader's Version which differs from what we have in the Pew Bibles. But I think it's a smoother translation, easier to listen to and, and get a lot out of. So feel free to follow along or just to listen. Paul writes, The message of the cross seems foolish to those who are lost and dying, but it is God's power to, say, to us who are being saved. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of those who are wise. I will do away with the cleverness of those who think they are so smart. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where are the great thinkers of our time? Hasn't God made the wisdom of the world foolish? God wisely planned that the world would not know him through its own wisdom. It pleased God to use the foolish things we preach to save those who believe. Jews require signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach about Christ and his death on the cross. That is very hard for Jews to accept, and everyone else thinks it's foolish. But there are those whom God has chosen, both Jews and Greeks. To them, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. The foolish things of God are wiser than human wisdom. The weakness of God 
is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In his book, The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything, Father James Martin shares the story of his friend, Richard, another Jesuit priest, whose family was touched by great suffering. His father died of a massive stroke at age 36, leaving his mother to care for Richard and his two siblings. At dawn on Richard's 25th birthday, his Jesuit superior woke him for a call from his mother. His sister Tracy had been in a terrible accident. When Richard and his mother arrived at the hospital, they learned that Tracy would be totally paralyzed for the rest of her life. Through tears, Richard's mother began to ask him questions about suffering that put his faith to the test. Where the hell is God, she asked. Over the next few weeks, well-meaning Christian friends, unfortunately, offered glib, surface-level answers to Richard's questions. Tracy must have done something to offend God, some said. Others suggested her suffering was a glorious building block for the mansion in heaven when she dies. Some simply said it was a mystery that needed to be accepted, no questions asked. Others wrote that his family was truly blessed because God only sends crosses to those who can bear them. I remember hearing things like this when I worked as a chaplain. God never gives you more than you can handle. Personally, I feel that what God gives us is the strength to face the challenges that confront us. For me, the idea of God looking down on this situation and thinking, well, Richard's tough, Tracy's tough, they can take a little bit more, and then giving them this amount of suffering, it doesn't sound like the God that I follow. Richard rejected the well-meaning answers of his Christian friends in favor of a hard look at the reality of suffering. He struggled with thinking about the complexities of where and how God fits into our fragile human world. With all that in mind, Richard answered his mother's question, where the hell is God? By saying simply but meaningfully, I think God is devastated. He thought of God groaning with loss in the book of Isaiah and Jesus crying at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. God wasn't standing outside our agony, Richard said, but was a companion within it, holding us, sharing our grief and pain. Jesus was no stranger to grief and pain. In the gospel passage this morning, the text tells us that Jesus speaks quite openly or plainly about the inevitability of his suffering and death. The disciples have been listening to him speak cryptically, using parables and metaphors and flowery descriptions of the kingdom of heaven. But now, finally, he's speaking openly with them, using plain language. And the thing he tells them most clearly is that he will go undergo great suffering, be rejected, and be killed. And this is just too much for Peter to handle. Peter has recognized Jesus as the Messiah of God, the anointed one, the one for whom the Jews have been waiting so long 
waiting so long that when he came into Jerusalem, they shouted, save us. Peter takes his teacher aside and rebukes him. Rebukes him. Now, rebuke is not a word that I use very commonly, and I'm not sure what it means to you. But in the Gospel of Mark, here is what gets rebuked most often. Jesus has rebuked raging wind and seas, rebuked unclean spirits, and rebuked demons. So this is not just Peter saying, hey, Jesus, you like really sure about this whole thing? Peter is shocked. He is disgusted. He is, quite frankly, terrified. He's thinking, as Jesus puts it, like a person and not like God. But I want to be fair to Peter. If he recognized Jesus as the Messiah, then there were certain expectations that went along with that role. Kingship, might, and victory. After the exodus from Egypt, for example, once God's people walked across the parted waters on dry ground, the waves came down crashing over their Egyptian oppressors, those who had made the Jewish people's lives so miserable for so long. And afterwards, Moses belted out a victory song. I will sing to the Lord who has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider have been thrown into the sea. The Lord is a warrior. And in one of the Psalms we hear, the one who sits in the heavens laughs. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You shall break your enemies with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like the potter's vessel. That's what Peter, that's what everyone really was looking for. A rod of iron, judgment coming from on high, the laughter of a warrior god, military might, the likes of which Rome had never seen. Isn't that sort of what we're looking for too? A God who will fight for us, who will set things right for us, take away all our suffering, shelter us from every storm, provide us with a comfortable and uncomplicated life. There's just one tiny itty-bitty problem with that mindset, and it's highlighted in Holy Week, which begins today with glory, with triumph, Jesus riding into Jerusalem, palms waving, people shouting, Hosanna, shouting, save us. And just a few days later, those voices of praise turned against him, no longer shouting, Hosanna, but crucify him, crucify him. And that's precisely what happened. Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed of God, the one who was meant to free the captives, died on a cross, suffering and abandoned by most of his friends. Whenever we try to understand suffering, whenever we ask that question, where the hell is God? A question I have been asking myself yet again this week in the wake of another deadly shooting at an elementary school. Whenever we ask that question, there are generally two paths we can go down. Paul describes them as the wisdom of the world and the message of the cross. Now, the wisdom of the world is built upon what appears to be self-evident about life and the way we expect to see God in the world. 
It confirms what people want in a god. The wisdom of the world is founded on military might and financial stability. The good guys always win, the bad guys always lose. Paul understood very clearly that the wisdom of the world couldn't really account for what happened at the cross. And to be quite honest, it can't really account for what happens every day in our lives when we find ourselves confronted by pain and suffering that seem so arbitrary, so random. A layoff, a relapse of addiction, a mobile home without heat or electricity, a child bullied at school, a tornado that tears through a community. These things, along with what happened at the cross, make our faith utter foolishness according to the wisdom of the world. And so we turn from the wisdom of the world to the message of the cross. Now, Jesus and his disciples had a very clear understanding of what the cross meant. When Jesus was about six years old, the Romans crucified 2,000 Galileans. They put up crosses like billboards advertising Caesar's supremacy. In Jesus' youth, the cross was perhaps the strongest possible symbol of the wisdom of the world, the power to torture, to disfigure, to kill. It was a symbol of pain and persecution, of loneliness and loss and despair. The cross was a symbol of what Pastor Tom Long calls capital D death. Capital D death, he says, comes to every funeral, and it loves to preach. Capital D death's sermon is always the same. It's damn every one of you, I win every time. You want the evidence? It's right there. I break all loving relationships. I destroy all community. You belong to me. So how can it be that the central image of our faith is a primitive tool for capital punishment? How foolish is that? Well, Long goes on to explain that there's another voice that can speak at every funeral, another voice we can hear if we listen closely enough. This voice is the message of the cross, which tells us that just as death was not the end of Jesus' story, it is not the end of ours either. The message of the cross tells us that in life and in death, we belong to God. It tells us that nothing, nothing at all, not even death, can separate us from God's unfailing love in Jesus Christ. Because God transformed the cross from an instrument of death to a symbol of hope, Long says we have the duty and the delight of standing at every funeral and saying, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, grave, where is your sting? The message of the cross contradicts everything that people imagine God should be. It's based on God's self-revelation in the weakness and suffering and death. People who cling to the wisdom of the world look at the painful things of life and act like it's all so easy to understand. These would be the folks giving those pat answers to Richard and his mother. Those who embrace 
the message of the cross, recognize that it's precisely in times of pain and sorrow when God shows up. To know God truly is to know God hidden in suffering. Take up your cross and follow me. Actual crucifixions are rare today. Actual crosses are hard to come by. But suffering is not. Jesus might say to us, take up your grief or your chronic pain or your depression. Take up your heartache or the pressure you feel to succeed or your diagnosis. Take up your broken relationships or your fears for your children or a thousand other symbols of suffering. Take them up and follow me. And in your deepest suffering, in the hardest moments of life, I will be there. God is hidden in suffering, which does not mean that suffering is redemptive or necessary. That's the wisdom of the world trying to sneak back in. What it does mean is that when you are suffering, Jesus is with you. And I hope you'll find comfort in that, but I hope you'll also find a little bit of challenge. Because where Jesus is, there we should be also. And that means that if we follow the message of the cross, then we need to be there for those who are suffering. Not to offer heartwarming platitudes, but our presence, our love, our embrace. If you want to see this in action, and if you can tolerate quite a bit of profanity, check out the Ted Lasso, Ted Lasso episode, Man City. Now, the show is about an English football team coached by an irrepressibly chipper American who's been hired to build a real team out of this ragtag group of footballers. Jamie Tart is the star player with an ego to match. And throughout the series, he and another player, Roy Kent, have butted heads over and over and over again. They're the very definition of rivals. And in this episode, we catch a glimpse of why Jamie is such a bully to his teammates. After a devastating loss, Jamie's father comes into the locker room and relentlessly mocks and belittles him. It's so cruel, it's honestly hard to watch. And when Mr. Tart is finally dragged away, the whole team, including Coach Lasso, stands there, stunned, in awkward silence. They've seen Jamie's suffering on full display, and no one knows quite what to do. No one, that is, except Jamie's sworn enemy, Roy. Without a word, Roy marches over to Jamie and grabs him in a bear hug. Watching this scene, you would get the sense that if Roy had waited a few more seconds, Jamie would have collapsed to the floor. But there Roy is, holding him, holding him up. Roy chose to walk toward suffering, to feel the pain, to feel the warmth of those tears on his shoulder. Friends, we all have crosses to bear. The suffering in our lives points to the undeniable fact that we contemplate during this season of Lent, that our lives are broken. We cannot save ourselves. And while we may wish 
for a God who comes into the world to take away that suffering, that is not what our God chooses to do. Instead, our God chooses to come into this world and stand with us in that suffering. Jesus wraps his arms around us to keep us from falling. Jesus was killed, and in just three days, his cross was transformed from a symbol of death to a symbol of resurrection and eternal life. Just think what God can do with the crosses that we bear. Amen.